I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's good, Celtics Nation? Welcome back to the Celtics Pod with me, your boy, Adam Taylor. I'm joined by my co-hosts in crime, Mr. Will Weir, Mr. Greg Manakis. We're reacting about 15 minutes after the Celtics took care of business against the Brooklyn Nets in game one. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on cloud nine, man. How y'all feeling? Yeah, I feel so good. So I, I was driving back from the Valley of Texas, driving back to Austin. So I was in the car the whole time. So my girlfriend took over like halfway through the trip. I was like, I gotta, I gotta watch this game. I'm sorry. So I was like kind of watching a pixelated feed the whole time. And I was at like 30 seconds behind, but man, at the end, I didn't even know how much time was left when that happened. So when Tatum laid it up, I thought there was more game. And then I saw them waving it off. I was like, Oh no, what actually happened? But it was very clear. Once I watched the replay, you got it off in plenty of time, but what an ending to that game. How you feeling, Will? Yo, the that game was chaos. I think it took multiple, like it, it felt like that game took place over multiple weeks and not multiple hours because so much happened in that game that I, I feel like sometimes when we do this and we come on live and I'm so excited and there's so much energy, I forget that like things that happened in the first quarter that I had jotted down somewhere like, oh, I want to talk about that or ooh, this is interesting. I, I completely forget about all that. Like anything that happened way early on, no idea what happened. Celtics win. Tatum at the buzzer. Amazing game. I, I don't. I have no idea where to start. Adam, you got you to point us in some direction here. Shout out to our guy, Steven. Yep, got this in six. I think, I think all of us settled on Celtics in six as our pre-series prediction as well. I had them in six or seven. I, I, I'm On this kind of showing, I don't want it to go to seven games, man, because when Kyrie is playing like that, like anything's possible, dude. So I've got it in six just because I'm... I need my blood pressure to survive, and I don't want to go to a game seven. I mean, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Jason Tatum? Do you want to start? With, I think we need to go with Al Horford, man. Al Horford was excellent. That's what I'm saying. There's there's so many different ways. I mean, I think we got to talk about the buzzer beater first, right? I mean, if we're gonna yeah, go live, every, everyone is 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 amped up on that. Like, you know, the the Nets at one point in the fourth quarter, they go on a 15 to two run. Kyrie. Say what you will about the man. Number one, I'm I'm all in on this like sports villain hate. Like he's flipping off the crowd. He's doing the boo-hoos. And he played out of his mind. He played out of out of out of his of his dang mind. Like he was hitting shots that were insane. And you know, Jeff Van Gundy on the broadcast made a great point. Like, we had to send that incredibly hard double team on the Nets last possession where, you know, Al came in, and you know, we got to talk about Al Horford for sure, a bunch in this game. He came in and provided that really hard double team that made, you know, Kyrie give the ball up so the Nets didn't get, you know, to convert their last bucket. And then before, let's just take it like a little step-by-step. Step. Did you guys think we were going to call a timeout? Did you want a timeout? What what were your thoughts with, I think we got the ball right around 8 to 10 second mark, and and he may just let him go. What were you guys thinking at that point? Well, like, like I said, I was, I was in the car, so I didn't know how much time was left and it was like super pixelated. So I, I had no idea what was happening. I just saw these like little guys run up and down my tiny little phone screen. Um, but the, the fact that we didn't call a timeout in retrospect, like I didn't even, even realize that. Like I literally got out of a five hour car ride. I hopped in front of my computer, got set up and I'm here. So I didn't even realize that we didn't call a timeout or that was the thing that was happening. Um, the game was so chaotic. Like it was a chaotic viewing experience for myself as well. But wow, that's crazy that Ime decided not to call a timeout in that situation. So what is it? KD misses the shot with about eight seconds left, and we it, just went. like eight or nine seconds left, and and they just went. Adam, what were you thinking? Because you you were watching that game, obviously. Like, you, luckily, this is a game that you have an opportunity with the time. Yeah, dude, the early game. To be able to watch live, so you got a great experience. So what are you thinking when when they get that rebound off the KD miss? Were you, were you thinking call a timeout? And I know at one point Jalen kind of had it up in the corner or, or got past the half court line with it. I thought maybe that's when they were going to call it. And then it just became, you know, chaotically, they let it go and, and it yes. played out. But, but what were you thinking? I mean, I was expect everyone was expecting a timeout for me. I was kind of like, once he didn't call it, I'm like, Oh, they're trying to draw the foul. They're trying to, they're trying to get the contact hit the one, you know, try and bounce the second one off the backboard or like rim it out. If, if it doesn't work, then you're going to go to overtime. If it does work, then you can win that way. So I was not expecting, like, I was expecting the timeout, but I was not expecting them to swing it side to side and then look for Tatum cutting. Or, you know, if Tatum doesn't make that cut, then all of a sudden you've swung it to Marcus Smart for the game winning free. So I was like, man, just draw the contact, get it to the halftime. But, dude, 
like that's that's um that's a big boy that's a gutsy call from Udoka. I mean Udoka yeah. made some big time calls all the way through that game, played Jason Tatum pretty much the entire way from halftime mm-hmm. onwards. You know, gassed him out a little bit. That was a big call. A couple of um times that I think like he you know he pulled Tice out at certain points where I thought Tice was getting abused, put Grant Williams in, but you lose the size a little bit. I thought that was quite good to see at certain points. I mean points at the end he did that too. He he pulled yeah. Tice and went to the Derek White lineup as that as that closing lineup, which I think he's he pulling have all the right strings. Right pulling yeah. all the right strings all game. Guts, shout out, shout out to our guy Teddy Barry, by the way. This is just in a in our group chat. He texted us, he said uh, Marcus played the long con going into Chuck mode earlier just to get the two guys to bite on the final play. <laughs> but that, that was just so good. Like that last play, if you think about it, right? So I'm replaying it in my head right now. Ball goes to JB, right? So JB comes up the right side, drives, gets shut off, doesn't force it, kicks opposite to Marcus. Marcus pump fakes and hits Tatum cutting with like three seconds left. Does this ba- like ballerinic spin and he finishes with like 0.2 left like that what a play what an absolute I mean, honestly, the, the fact so, that they trusted that they trusted each other the whole time was like that that's what we've been looking for all year and it happened in the biggest game of the year like shout out to Ime you pulled all the right strings you got these guys playing exactly how we need them to play and that's the a big differentiator with this Celtics team I look at the West and I think the Suns are, are a similar way when the Warriors were rolling it's everyone trusts each other. Everyone knows where they're supposed to be. You kind of have this, you know, second nature feel. And, and I'll be honest, I 100% thought Marcus was either taking a three or then once he pump faked and made a dribble into the lane. And I, and I really probably couldn't have even faulted him at this point because the play, like I said, it was kind of a broken play. It was a little chaotic. Once he got into the lane, I fully thought there was some type of Marcus, you know, one-legged jump shot or, or a little bit of a floater that was coming. And with how much time was left on the clock, like he's in the lane, kind of, you know, getting towards the lane I, I wouldn't have been able to hate on it too much but for him to still take that one extra beat to make that pass and then as you said for Tatum to make that cut make that ballet spin and then I think have the you know the awareness I think that's the part that's probably something that's like in the moment right now is a little underrated it's just how aware how court aware you have to be to catch spin get it off the glass all in one motion because he got it off but I mean there was point four left like it was clear he got it off but there wasn't like a ton of time built in so I I mean for all of that to happen in one motion really speaks volumes about what this team is and in their togetherness do you know what Tatum created separation off spin moves about five different times in that game cooked KD a few times so for him to kind of go to that like instantly just get the ball straight into that spin move that means he was confident in creating that separation because he'd done it probably two times in the second, he'd done it in the third, and then you hadn't really seen him do it in the fourth because you don't want a guy just pirouetting everywhere. We're not watching ice skate. We're not watching this Olympic ice dancing. Do you know what I'm saying? But the connectedness to be able to catch it in rhythm, like, you know, do that spin move, create that separation, and then finish. Like, that was a tough shot with all of the pressure of, like, you know, you've got to get it off in 0.4 seconds, 0.5 seconds. What have we got here? Should have called a timeout, but we will take it. Yeah, we, you know, I mean, John, what we was, what I was saying was, I was expecting them to try and draw contact once it went mm-hmm. to a point where I was, because there's a point where if you call the timeout too late, you're actually putting yourself in a worse position because you give their defense time to reset. Then you've got to execute your play. They've got more type chance to like yeah. to shut you down. I think once it went below that 10 second mark, I was kind of like, yeah, you want to play against this open floor because you've got a bit of an advantage. Um, JB, I felt, played quite well down the stretch. I think he was forcing it a little bit to begin with. But that Tatum spin move for me was just so much space creation that he'd done throughout the game that he that's not going to be there in game two. Brooklyn are going to be ready for that, and they're going to take that spin move away early. They're not going to want him hitting, with him hitting them with that again. Yeah, my my buddy who uh, played D1 ball in New Mexico texted me at the end of the game. He was just like, wow, like what a game from Tatum. I think I feel like we need to have like a long five to ten minute discussion about JT and what he showed tonight. But in general, his his biggest takeaway, my buddy AJ, he was like his footwork is just absolutely bananas. Like the footwork that he showed in that spin move that you're talking about where he cooked KD a few different times and then he went to that spin move at the end of the game is just absolutely insane. To, to Will's point, to have that court awareness, to even think of doing that and to pull it off so beautifully <laughs> and so poetically at the end of the game on Kyrie, um, as you'd have it. It's just like, what a game from Tatum. But when you when you juxtapose him 
against Kevin Durant, you know, Kevin Durant, who is the purest scorer we've seen in decades. And when you put him face to face with JT, JT, you know, throughout the, the last couple matchups with Durant has looked every bit the score that Kevin Durant is and maybe even a better two-way player. Like his his defense today was insane as well. He got cooked a couple times by Kyrie, but who didn't? Um, yeah. But his his one-on-one defense on KD was phenomenal. He blocked him. How many, have you ever seen KD's jump shot get blocked? Like, I don't think I've ever seen that. And then, like, I've seen it get blocked from behind, but never just, like, a straight-up contest. Yeah, JB got but, him from behind, too. Yeah. yeah, JB got him from behind. And then he drew the charge on KD as well. So, as you guys were watching, because remember, I was in the car, right? So, I'm watching on my phone, and it just, like, wasn't the greatest viewing experience. What did you feel? Because to me, the whole every time I was able to get like a, a solid two minutes of like actual streaming, it looked like JT was the best player on the floor. Yeah, I mean, very similar to what you're saying. I had people that, you know, this is what I love about the playoffs is everyone's watching the same games at the same time. And so, you know, when you hit up your buddy, it's like, oh, no, so I was watching, you know, I was watching the Pistons game because I'm a Detroit fan or whatever it might be. And so just like you, I've had people texting me that are like, man, I didn't realize Tatum's at this level now. This is like the Jason Tatum experience now, him having, you know, eight assists, seven of them, I think, in the first in the first half, you know, like and uh, watching JT tonight, he was very in control. And this is something, Greg, you and I have talked a lot about when it comes to younger players and evaluating. There's very few people that feel like they're very much in control. And like I said, this game was very chaotic, so it was hard to have control of this game throughout the entire, you know, the entire time. It just wasn't possible. But especially in that second quarter and then really in that third quarter, it felt like JT had a certain presence to him where it was his game and it was kind of his world. And that's something that I think is a little bit new. Now, obviously, Kyrie came in in the fourth and went into like super villain mode and that and that got shaken up a little bit. But I think for me, that was something that that was very different was him controlling the game and picking his spots, you know, very being being very intentionally selective of. I'm dishing out dimes right now or right now I need to go on a seven, you know, seven Oh nine Oh run. And I'm going to go ahead and assert my will scoring the basketball. And then throughout the game, he was great defensively. So I think putting all of those together was something that, that felt like was different. And it's part of, you know, Tatum's ascension into that 100% confirmed, you know, elite superstar status, not a game, but like, if this is something that continues to, to happen in the playoffs, especially when your opponent is Kevin Durant, who you are most, you know, often compared to. And if you listen to him on the Draymond Green podcast, talking about KD even is like, you're the next me, you're the next guy, you're the next team USA guy. Like, I, I think this is just, you know, it, it, it's just that next level that Tatum's hitting right now. I wrote about that today. Uh, this was the passing of the torch series. So, uh, I obviously I agree with everything you just said <laughs> because I wrote about it. I think for me, like, you know, one of the things that I really took note of was that I felt like Tatum was manipulating everything. So he saw that they were throwing to at him early. He saw that they were doing their best to kind of close down his airspace, take away driving lanes. So he became a passer early and often, you know, got I think he ended the first quarter with what was it, six assists, seven assists in the first. Seven, Seven, seven assists in the, in the first, first half. I forget what it was in the first quarter, but seven in the first half. Yeah, yeah, seven in the first half. So um, for me, it was like, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to distribute this rock until you have to sag off me a little bit to play the passing lane. And when you do that, that's when I'm going to change up and I'm going to start driving driving against you. I'm going to start scoring off the, the pull-up. And then, you know, the way, and I'm going to be writing about this tomorrow, Monday for people that are listening on the actual podcast, the the way that Tatum kind of navigated all the different coverages that Brooklyn sent him, you know, there was times where they were sending a big man at him. He had Claxton or Drummond on him and he'd either cook you off the dribble or he'd just move the ball, get force enough ball switched up to get the ball back. There'd be times where KD was on him. Then they'd send doubles. Then they'd try and sag off him. Then they'd try and trap. Then they'd try and ice. And he just had an answer for absolutely everything. And when you want to talk about somebody's ascension to superstardom, it's having those counters and then being able to counter their counter to your counter. And it's it's that chess game, right? So I think that Tatum came out knowing pretty much what they were going to do to try and trap him early and throw him off his game and already came in with a passing mindset, with a facilitation mindset. And once that started to pay dividends and Brooklyn had to adjust, that's when he turned on the heat. Uh, defensively, he was great. I thought he had KD in his pocket for most of the game. Uh, his help defense was solid. His perimeter defense was solid. 
this was probably the best, one of the best playoff games we've seen from JT, just in terms of who he was matched up with, the talent level he was coming up against, and just the way he read and controlled the game as like a lead guy. For sure. And I just love the way that JT takes on those big matchups, especially those defensive matchups, where from possession one, he's like, all right, Kevin Durant, you're mine. You know, and he, he's going to go out and cover him. You know, the Celtics obviously play a great team defense and throughout the game throw different people at KD. You know, Grant Williams had a couple great possessions on him. Al had a couple nice possessions on him. JB had a nice couple nice possessions on him. Marcus had a few possessions on him where they really made him work. And when you look at his box score, Will, are you able to do more than box score for us, man? Because I, yeah, I, I, I really want to get into the numbers. Yeah, let's let's break it down because let's when do you it. look at these, when you look at these numbers, um, it's it just it, it tells the story of the game for real. And Will, for those of you that are just tuning in, maybe for the first time, this is something that Will and I do on on our pod called uh, Green with Envy. Is this a little crossover episode where Will breaks it down with the morning box score just to kind of reset and allow everyone to kind of catch their breath after a game like that. So let's do it collectively. Here we go. Celtics win 115-114. to 114. Jason Tatum at the buzzer. Let's get it. Let's start with Brooklyn, though. Kevin Durant, 9 of 24, 1 of 5 from 3, 4 rebounds, 3 assists, 23 points on the night, minus 13. A little interesting note there. Kyrie Irving just in fuego. Say what you will about the guy. 12 of 20, 6 of 10 from the field, had 5 rebounds, 6 assists, 4 steals, 39 points on the night for Kyrie. He was plus 6 and was dominant in parts of the fourth quarter. Outside of that, you know, they had a great start from Seth Curry, who started off three of seven, only ended up with nine points, really cooled off later on. Nick Claxton had 13, Goran Dragic, who I know is uh, a Greg Menakis favorite as far as somebody that could be a little bit of a spoiler here. He had 14 points on six of 11 shooting. Let's go over to the Celtics. We talked about Jason Tatum at the buzzer, 31 points, nine of 18 shooting, three of seven from three, 10 of 12 from the line, four rebounds, eight assists, two blocks. Joining him, we had Al Horford. I think someone put it here in the chat. OG Al Horford game, 20 points, 15 rebounds for Al Horford to go along with great defense. He was 8 of 13 from the field. JB, 9 of 19 for 23 points. Marcus Smart, 8 of 17. He had 20 points to go along with 6 assists and 7 rebounds. And then a number that I saw here that I wanted to point out, points in the paint. Now, I think the Celtics missed quite a few shots at the rim that they probably should have made. And we can talk about whether what the officiating was like. I thought it was was a little bit inconsistent. But Celtics win the points in the paint 56 to 32. And that's what's missing a considerable amount of a considerable amount of looks down low. So that is your morning box score recap. Hope hopefully everyone here is reset. Celtics win 115 to 114. Lead the best of seven, one to zero. Bruce Brown, where are you at? 56 to 32 in the paint. Let's go. Yeah, I mean that that was bulletin board material, what Bruce Brown said. And, uh, you know, the South, by the way, the, the Celtics shout out to the, you know, people putting on everything pregame. They put that quote on the, on the jumbotron pregame just to get the crowd fired up. Big, big time move, big, big applause from from how how was the crowd? So I I didn't really have much volume as I was watching. Um, I I would imagine the crowd was amazing, but like compare it to the Timberwolves crowd in the, in the playing game, where, where would you rank it? Uh, I mean, I, I would say it's fairly similar. I mean, I think it's hard to replicate something that like like how they had it in minnesota because it's it's so foreign and new like we've been gearing up for it. you could see if you're just on twitter like leading up to it everyone that was at the game i could see you know everyone's different view of them being ready 20 30 40 minutes before the game getting ready but it was consistent throughout and the biggest part of it was was just you know like i said i keep using the word chaos this game had this energy to it from the very beginning and it was really fun whether you were you know whether you had a dog in the fight or not like it was a super fun game to watch and uh yeah i mean it was it was up there i don't i don't know how to how to rank it i guess but but you could feel it through the tv which okay. i think is which i think is the the telltale sign yeah and when 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 we look at that morning box score adam is there anything in that box score that stands out to you on either end cuz for me it's like when i look at when i look at the nets man like they just don't have a lot on that roster. It's like we we've talked about this before, but they're relying very heavily on Nick Claxton, who's a good player, but he's not like he shouldn't be getting thirty minutes in the playoffs. And Goran Dragic, like they're relying a lot on Dragic right now, and I'm just not sure the Nets have enough to like re- really give the Celtics much of a problem if unless K- KD or Kyrie is just going insane as they did tonight. So I'm looking at a location box score so I can see where the shot attempts came from on the floor versus where they were. Um... And then, so 
I've kind of been trying to make sense of this. So if we look at it, go by area, so we can kind of talk about strengths and weaknesses for both teams, right? Mm-hmm. So at the rim, Brooklyn shot 12 of 18, they drew two fouls. Boston shot 24 of 36, they drew five fouls. So obviously Boston took double the amount of rim attempts as what Brooklyn did. You know from all season long that Boston likes pressure the rim because it opens up the three-point forces defense. To, what, what do you think about Brooklyn's ability to even penetrate outside of Kyrie? Like, Patty Mills is pretty much a perimeter point guard at this point in his career. Goran Dragic is a penetrator, but he's not really... He's more of a probing guy than he is somebody that's looking to score off, the, off penetration. Where's Brooklyn's rim pressure coming from? If Kyrie is sitting or he's starting slow like he did in this game, where does that rim pressure come from? You know you've got Nick Claxton and he's a lob threat, but you're going to have Al Horford or Tice playing in drop to kind of take that lob threat away, like, considerably. So where's Brooklyn's rim pressure coming from? I mean, it's KD and Kyrie. I mean, pretty much any answer that has to do with the Brooklyn Nets, the answer is KD, KD and Kyrie. And that's the problem, right? Like, yeah, exactly. And, and that's why I don't, that's why, listen, like, like what we saw happen late in this game when Kyrie got on his run and, you know, we got lucky. There was, there was at least one, if not two shots that KD had that he normally makes that he ended up missing, um, you know, but it, it, it's those reasons that give them a chance. But ultimately, when I look at this in the lens of a seven game series, like it, it's everything that we're saying is that there's not once you get past those two levels of KD and Kyrie, there, there's just not much there. And that's what makes two things. The Ben Simmons factor, which, you know, it, like a, until he plays a game, like I still think it's hard for him to come make a difference next year. I think that's a whole other story that you'd have to get into. And then, you know, as I'm trying to think who else could do, you know, something off the dribble. And like you mentioned Goran Dragic and like I'm thinking, you know, early in that game, it felt like Seth Curry looked a little like a little more like the Seth Curry from Philly that, Hey, this guy is going to be a really good addition to this team. But that fell off really after the the first couple of possessions that he had. And he's not necessarily a guy that's going to put pressure on the rim, but he can be put in some more, you know, pick and roll, pick and pop situations and not have to have the ball always in Kyrie and KD's hands. But at the end of the day, there's, there's just not much behind those two. And that's where, even though obviously this is a buzzing buzzer beater game that could have gone either way, I still feel very, very confident about this Celtics team in the series. Yeah, and Van Gundy made a really good point. Um, and there, there's one point where Patty Mills made like a kind of random cut opposite side and they got a wide open three. I think it was for Dragic in the corner. And Van Gundy just pointed it out. He's like, the Nets just need to move more on offense because so much of what they do is just like pick and roll heavy where guys are stationary or it's just isolation heavy. And it's just all just stand there and hope that KD or Kyrie creates an advantage for you. Right. Because, you know, on, on some level, they don't have the the skill to be able to have second and third side actions like the Celtics do. But they're NBA players. You know, there have been plenty of times in which guys that aren't the best players in the league at least still show that they have some offensive skill set, whether it's some, some, you know, the star players are sitting out for a game or someone gets injured or something like that. And they, they do have a couple guys that I think if given a little bit more opportunity to create, they might be able to do that. What, what do we, Oh, <laughs> I didn't know what, what that was, Adam. What we got pulled up here. You're on mute right now. You're on mute right now, Adam. My bad. So while you guys have been talking, I've been pulling all the data from the season for the nets and then looking at what they've got compared to some other stuff, like compared to what they've done all season. Right? So in this game, I'll have a look in a minute. The net, so for the season, the Nets are shooting, uh, sorry, are averaging 15.45% of their offense comes from transition. So when we look at what they did against Boston today, what we're getting is because, you know, a lot of the things, a lot of what um, the play-by-play guys were saying was the Nets haven't been getting in transition much. You know, KD's best shot attempts came in transition. As you guys said, Kyrie got hot when the floor opened up for him a little bit more. So that made me think, oh, well, let me see what their transition um, frequency was today, what percentage of their possessions came in transition, and see how that goes against their majority of the season. So their best, so today they had 15.6%. So bang on season average, basically, for their transition offense. I don't think that the Celtics did a great job of containing that transition, but I think they did a great job of limiting them getting out to transition. Some of the best games this year for Brooklyn have been when they've gone 25% or more of their reference comes in the open court.
that was pretty much what I was doing while you guys were talking. I was just, <laughs> I was just, you know, I was being a nerd. Yeah, just not listening to us whatsoever and just pulling up some stats that uh, Will and I have no access to. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well, that's, no, what but, I, that's what enriches it, right? No, that, that, that's what you bring to the table, baby. You got, you got all that insider access for sure. Um, yeah, but just like finishing up my point, I just don't think that the way that the Nets run their offense, they're going to be able to beat us in a seven-game series. I just don't see it happening. I think today was a huge opportunity for them where – KD doesn't play his best game, but Kyrie just goes off and has, what do you have, 38, 39 points. And when you don't get the victory after having one of those supernova performances from one of your nuclear weapons that you have, like that's got to be deflating for them. That's got to be really deflating for the Nets. They're back in the locker room. They had an opportunity to win game one on the road in Boston where KD didn't play well and they didn't do it, right? So like that, that I, I don't know how you guys would feel, but if, if I were the Celtics right now, or out of the Nets, like one team's way up here and one team's way down here because that series to me, well, a lot of it depended on who won this first game. And that's not like a huge statement to make, but like I, I, I think it it could make this series go a lot more quicker than if it had gone the other way. For sure, for sure. And one of the things I thought was was really interesting as, as we talk about, you know, how this team has grown. I don't know if either of you caught Jason Tatum's interview on the on the national broadcast after the game. But I mean, for for how electric the crowd was for, you know, how emotional that game was, how up and down it was. He was so level headed in his response and the way that he composed himself and was, you know, basically like in the moment, this guy just hit a game winning buzzer beater to, you know, take out, you know, one of the guys that, you know, the team, you're not just the team you're playing, but the guy you're chasing in like the, you know, one of the best players in the planet type race. And his response was, it's just one game. And the way that he said it gave me like an ultra boost of confidence. Like he was calm. I was not very calm in my living room. I was running around my living room, having my dog chase me because I was jumping up and down from excitement. And then in the background, you could hear Marcus like amping up the crowd and getting interviewed by Abby Chin. And it was just really interesting to see this composure from, from a guy like Jason Tatum, who has clearly taken, is taking that next step. And it's taking also that leadership lead by example step as well, where it's, listen, this is great. We're going to celebrate. We're going to, we're going to feel good about ourselves, but we got more to do. The, the job is not done. And seeing that from a guy that's, you know, rumored to be 19. No, nah, I know he's at 24, but still, you know, seeing that type of composure from him is, you know, is a sign that this team just might be ready to take that next step. Uh, and so it's just, once again, there's just all these little things that are adding up throughout the season, throughout this game that just leave you feeling very, very good about where this team's at right now. People aren't going to like that I'm going to say this, but it kind of, it's kind of reminiscent of that Kobe job's not finished quote. Yeah. Like Kobe, you know, and he's like, job's not finished. Have we won? Are we free? Have we got a championship? Job's not finished. And, you know, Tatum's going to love the fact that it makes sense. Yeah, Tatum's going to love the fact that it comes off that way because obviously growing up idolizing Kobe. For me, one of the things I noticed during that kind of post-game, like mini interview, was just how much it meant to him to one, be getting those MVP chants throughout the game because I think that meant a, um, a ton. And two, just to be in front of the crowd scoring the game-winning bucket. Like, you could see he was kind of overwhelmed at the same time. You could see it meant a lot to him. Uh, that, to me, showed growth as well because, you know, there's been times where people are like, man, is JT really happy to be in Boston? And all these narratives that need to end up in the trash, like the way he, the way he kind of embraced everything... And he needed that. Like, he had to recompose himself like three or four times. It wasn't like he was comfortable. Just like he was like, Look, just, whew, a lot's going on, a lot to process. Like that recomposition for me was one of the most telling signs that this dude is living and breathing Celtics basketball right now. He feels like he's part of the heritage. Like, you know, he's the next guy up that the next one, the next line of Celtics are going to want to emulate. And he, these games are the ones that are going to keep building that that legacy, you know, that everyone will be talking about 10 years time that Jay, if, if the Celtics go on a deep run this year, it'll be, do you remember when Tatum won game one to set the tone? Because this is a confidence killer for Brooklyn, make no mistake about it. This is the sort of thing that will kill your spirit. It'll break you. You, you go toe to toe with a pesky Celtics team or a plucky Celtics team, whichever one you prefer. You're up. There's like 
eight seconds, nine seconds left. You give it to Jalen Brown that can't breathe through his nose because Kyrie Irving took it out. <laughs> so the dude's a mouth breather for the last bit of the game. And then this mouth breather suddenly just kills you with like an, an uncontested run to the rim. Then on the next time down, he comes off a side action straight over, swings it to Marcus Smart, who everybody's just like, yep, that's a brick. Doesn't happen. Straight into Jason Tatum, who suddenly becomes a ballerina. We see a nutcracker rendition, boom, finish. Like that's that's a heartbreaker, man. If I'm K, if I'm Kyrie and KD, I'm feeling I'm I'm feeling some sort of way. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking like from the from the Nets perspective, you know, we go into halftime, it's tied at tied at 61, and, and KD's made two field goals and has four turnovers. And the game's tied. And it's it and I was left with this feeling of man, I, I thought the Celtics played a lot better than what this score is indicating. And if you're the Nets, you're kind of looking around like, man, we're tied with this team and, I, and our best players not even playing well. We got this, you know, mm -hmm. but now you look at how the game ends up and you see what Kyrie Irving did and, you know, the way that, you know, Kevin Durant didn't necessarily, I mean, he had obviously a much better second half, but he didn't necessarily snap out of it. Nothing was easy for Kevin Durant. He was not having a fun night out there. And so now you walk away thinking, man, that was the game that we need to get. Usually when you're, and I don't know if I can call, I mean, the Nets seeding wise are the underdog, but anytime you are, you always talk about, we got to get one on the road. We got to split when we first between games one and two. And that was an opportunity that they had right there. And so, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's demeaning when you, when you, when you go back to that locker room and you got to sit with, you got to stew with it for a couple of days now. Mm -hmm. So the next game's not till Wednesday. So you're going to sit with it. And I'm sure, you know, Obviously, all of Kyrie's antics are going to be heavily discussed. So that's going to be something that's clearly going to be weighing on them for the next couple of days. So it's going to be interesting to see how they respond. I honestly think this could be an opportunity where for the Celtics coming out, you know, looking ahead a little bit to, to game two on Wednesday, where you come out and you may have a chance to, you know, metaphorically put your put your foot on their throat a little bit here and say, all right, your move. Go. You're going to bring Ben Simmons out. You go back to the tag team. You tagging in Ben Simmons for game three. I don't think he's ready, but y'all yeah. are down 2-0. Your move, what you're doing. So I think that's the storyline's gonna be interesting to, to play out here in the next couple of days. And just yeah, to throw and before, sorry, before I throw it to you, Greg, just to I've lost my train of thought. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot happening right now. There's a well, lot happening that we're trying to process. Yeah. So going into narratives, right? What what are the narratives gonna be moving forward? You know, the narrative coming into this series, especially with the Celtics team all year, was what? In the fourth quarter. What's our crunch time numbers? What are, what are our execution strategies down the stretch? Are we effective in crunch time? And the answer for the large part of the season has been no. You know, and then at the second half of the season, we were blowing everybody out, so we didn't have too many crunch time opportunities. And when you think back to a couple games in which we had moments where we could have won the game in the crunch, like against the Mavericks and Luka ended up being the better player down the stretch over Tatum, and then you come into tonight's game, or today's game, and you see the Celtics are down in the fourth quarter in crunch time and how are they going to how are they going to execute it felt like to me as i was watching i was like oh this is the same old story fourth quarter you know Kyrie and KD are just two better players and it's just easier for them to get offense but when at, at the end of the day the Celtics were the team that executed better down the stretch you know when it came down to it we we sent that hard double team at Kyrie got the ball out of his hands cuz you know if Kyrie shot whatever shot he got up was going in and the fact that we were able to make sure that he did not even get a shot up and he had to give it away through this like very, very unorthodox double team that we that we ran. And I'm like, Horford and Smart were just like, you know what? We're just running after him no matter where he goes. He's going to have to pass the ball. Um, yeah. you know, they they ahead, abandoned Robert. whatever else the game plan was. Yeah. It was just a panic run at Kyrie <laughs> and let's get the ball out of this guy's hands. Yeah, for sure. And and then you know, the email not calling the timeout. I know some people have said in, in the comments here that we should have called the timeout, but the fact that he trusted his guys just to play the right way and that we executed when, when we all thought Marcus Smart was going to shoot that last three-point shot, when we thought JB might rush something at the rim and he didn't do it, man. And the fact that we, we were able to execute in that moment, man, like I wonder what the narrative moving forward about this team is going to be because I'm a big believer in these moments where you see it happen, you know, it's all theoretical until you can actually execute in crunch time and the Celtics did it today. So like this to me for the rest of the league, I'm terrified and I'm the Nets. I'm terrified. I'm like, Ooh, like this, we were supposed to win this game because it came down to, you know what? We had the lead down the stretch. We have the two best closers in basketball. The Celtics are not that team. Well, the Celtics pulled it out tonight against that team.
And then this was where my train of thought was going before I lost it. And it kind of, t- I'm glad I let you speak because this ties in better now that I let you speak. So, you know, life works out well sometimes. One of the <laughs> things for me as well is... And we have works. Yeah, we're just ducking in and out of everywhere, dude. Like, for me, one of the things that everybody's going to say as well is like, hey, like, you know, when Will said you need to split the series, people are going to point at Kevin Durant saying he's not going to play, so he's not, he's going to find a way to have a better game in game two. As you said, you've got the two best closers and you're meant to be doing stuff down the stretch, especially when you're holding the lead. From Boston's perspective, their bench isn't going to be that bad, like consistently, you know? They're going to get better performance from their bench. So where KD can up his game, he can only give you so many points. He, You know, there's a limit. KD can't go out and drop 100 points or 60 points. You can go and get 40 off the bench if you have a really good night. So I think that... There's drawbacks to both teams' performances, and you do have the elite closers on the net, but you have so much strength in depth in the Celtics roster and rotation in terms of, you know, as you said earlier, Brooklyn are limited outside of KD and Kyrie. Everyone are like single skill or two skill guys. Boston are bringing on two-way players, one through seven, with Peyton Pritchard being the only guy that's realistically not a two-way threat. He's going to give you he's going to give you effort on defense, but he's not going to give you impact on that side of the floor. I don't think there's much Brooklyn can do that's going to shock the Celtics at this point. I think that we saw a lot of their best stuff in terms of we saw them find a rhythm in transition. We saw them run stuff for KD and KD create scoring pockets. We saw them get Kyrie going what what do you do when that's not happening? Because it, for half the game, it wasn't happening. And the only thing that kept you in the game to begin with was the fact that the Celtics were shooting poorly they, they, and they were wasting minutes. You know, you, when K- KD goes off the floor, you need to maximize those minutes. Brooklyn's defensive rating drops, their offensive rating drops. When you're forcing turnovers, you need to get to the rack. You need to get to the rim or, or at least draw contact and hit your foul shots. I mean, Boston missed quite a few foul shots, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't got the numbers in front of me. Have you? Yeah, I've got them here. They were, they were 19 to 24, so they started off pretty rough. They started yeah, off 7 to 12, and then they knocked them down. But like I said, they shot basically 50% in, inside the paint, which you know picked up a little bit towards the end. I still think there's a bunch of opportunities that the Celtics had to, to make this game not as close as it was. And, and you know, Adam, I, I totally agree with your point that I don't really know what the counter punch is for the Nets other than Kyrie and KD just continue to play all world. Like there's, there's just not really another counter punch they have now they can do it. And I think they're going to get a game or two in the series because of that's course. how good they are, you know? So I think that that is possible. The one thing that I'm curious to hear from, from you and Greg a little bit, and Greg, I'll try to give you a little bit of background in case you couldn't watch the pixelated figures quite as in depth as what I'm about to ask. But, you know, at, at a certain point in that fourth, especially when when Kyrie was getting hot and the Celtics were trying to figure out how to counter, you saw the communication defensively kind of break down for for a little stretch that it that it hadn't in you know or that it hasn't for most of the season, especially since you know the new year since the calendar flipped. And so I am curious to, to what you guys maybe either saw or what you guys think maybe might happen because you know Greg, you talked about what Van Gundy talked about when uh, Patty Mills made that cutoff ball, and then that was creating some of that tension on the defense and led to some of those miscommunications. So uh, I'm wondering if you know we find a way there, or Steve Nash finds a way to maybe just create some more movement. You're still centering everything on Kyrie and KD, and then how the Celtics try to counter that, or was it just like I said, this game was so intense and chaotic that maybe everything just got thrown off by you're a little too amped up that first playoff game and it's really not going to be much to worry about or, or, or maybe there's something there well well you forget you know we're both child of the children of the early internet so i'm used to watching like pixelated things you know <laughs> i got pretty good at that as a kid um uh, but <laughs> when uh we're you do talking- have glasses on so it, yeah it does make sense <laughs> look at adam you don't have to edit this out adam i didn't say anything too uh too bad but it's live, uh, kind of did nothing. Yeah. <laughs> with uh with Nash's, you know, strategy moving forward. One thing I was just looking at with the box score, the Celtics had in terms of offensive rebounds, the Boston Celtics had 14 offensive rebounds. I don't have second chance points in front of me. Brooklyn had five offensive rebounds. They only had 24 defensive rebounds. So they had uh, 24 defensive to 11 was the second chance points. Okay. So, but think about this. They had 24 defensive rebounds. We had 14 offensive rebounds. That's not a good number for the Nets. And when they're playing such small lineups and then you look at, you know, they have Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge and Cam Thomas also on the bench. 
Um, I don't think Sharp's going to see any time in the series. But like in terms of what can Steve Nash do, that is one adjustment that I would just be interested to see if he actually goes to. How desperate is he feeling? If Ben Simmons isn't going to be ready in time, because that's obviously he, he, he makes a big difference in terms of size and rebounding. But like, will he try to trot out a lineup that maybe LaMarcus Aldridge gets out there? Because the Celtics have had some issues guarding Aldridge in the past. He, you know, he's a big body that we've we've struggled to defend, but he's a liability. Blake Griffin is completely washed at this point. So like, will he, will Steve Nash throw Blake Griffin out on the court? Because I mean, you, you guys remember a couple of years ago when Blake Griffin was still on Detroit, Jason Tatum at the end of the game was just like, let me get Blake Griffin guarding me in isolation and I'm going to cook him. And he cooked him whenever he wanted. So I don't think Blake Griffin wants that problem, but I would, I would imagine if the Nets are going to make some sort of strategic strategic change, they got to size up just a little bit more. So I don't know what the what the lineups would be without Ben Simmons, but I'd just be interested to see if they try to go a little bit bigger so that number in the offensive rebound versus defensive rebound isn't so drastic in game two. So the Celtics got 39%. Well, in the terms of offensive rebounds, 39% of Boston's misses, they got a second chance on. So they pulled down rebounds on 39% of their misses. That's ridiculous. Just for reference, Brooklyn did it on 18, 19 will round up 19% of their misses. So that's a huge, a huge gap. But again, that comes down to the lack that Brooklyn have size around the room. They've got Drummond. They've got a bit of athleticism in Nick Claxton. But when you're going up against a team like Boston, it runs so much five out. You have to bring those big men up and it just gives guys so much opportunity to crash off the wings or come in from the corner, baseline, crash the boards. And then I think Al Horford was just dominant. There was just times where I felt like no one could get near Al Horford. He was just, it's that old man strength. Do you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. get off me, man. I'm just taking them, them rebounds. I agree. I think that that will be a strategy. And, um, you know, they'll be, they'll definitely be trying to chase those boards a bit more, but I'm not sure how they're going to be able to do it if the refs are calling the game like they were with this one, because it was so easy to get to pick up like stupid fouls fighting for an offensive rebound where sometimes mm-hmm. you kind of just like, you know what, I'm just going to let them get the defensive rebound and get back because I'm going to be more valuable on the floor down the stretch with two fouls rather than be on my fourth or fifth and I'm one or two away from fouling out of the game fighting for an offensive rebound. And I think that's what limited Brooklyn a lot because, you know, Drummond got into foul trouble quite early. Claxton isn't really an offensive rebound guy as far as I'm concerned. He's more of a put, like he'll be a putback guy if it comes off the cop and he's in good position. But he's there more for vertical spacing than he is for like challenging on. Yeah, he's, he's not he's not like a Enos Cantor or a Tristan yeah. Thompson in terms of guys or, that like literally Drummond. are in the league because they offensive rebound. Yeah, yeah. yeah but an- another thing, like strategically though, like when you, when Claxton's on the floor in the defensive end, his primary assignment tonight was Jason Tatum. You know, so like if if we're five out and Claxton is guarding Tatum, like they don't have any size near the rim. So like I think Nash is gonna have to make some changes. And I don't know, you know, what those change. I don't know if Aldridge or Griffin are the answer, but like I, I would start if I were Steve Nash taking Claxton off of Tatum because Tatum didn't have any issues with Claxton guarding him. I know that like Claxton had that one contest in the regular season where he like, I think he like blocked his shot where they called a foul and then reversed that call, um, you know, near the end of the game. And like, theoretically he has that length to give Tatum issues, but Tatum, Tatum's not going to have any issues with Claxton this series. So like I would, I would expect Nash to kind of mix those matchups a little bit, but they don't have anyone to guard Tatum. That's, that's their biggest issue. And that's where the Ben Simmons factor really comes into play. For sure. And and when you watch them, you know, I, I tweeted this and I think like within the first five minutes of the game, there's so many mismatches for the Celtics to exploit when it comes to the Nets defense. And it's, it's no matter who they, if they ever, if you just make them switch, you're, you're automatically in a favorable position, whether it's, you have, you know, if, if Claxton's guarding, you know, Kevin, uh, guarding Jason Tatum and then you have you know big guys down low that are either going to get offensive rebounds if the Celtics miss or you're getting Jalen Brown or Tatum or whoever it might be on a guy that just can't stay in front of them or somebody that can't guard them and so ultimately you know like you said if Ben Simmons comes back that that changes and it's very clear what he brings on the defensive end is what this team is missing it's absolutely their biggest black hole on their roster I think that makes them terrifying for next year but I can't really put too much stock into it and, and a guy just hasn't played all year and he's going to be thrown into that environment you asked me what the crowd was like the crowd was electric a guy who's not done well with crowds that are going to be brutal on him when he comes back i just can't imagine even in 10 to 15 minutes of you know just 
purely concentrated defensive effort, I still think it's going to be hard for him to make too much of a meaningful impact. Ben Simmons is Buster Bluth. He doesn't doesn't do well in big crowds. <laughs> I don't get this reference. It's uh, an Arrested Development uh, reference. It's pretty good. That's pretty I good. I forgot about more that. Arrested Development, to be fair. It's a I great show, man. You got to check that out. But, but hey, we got to talk about Al Horford here, guys. This is we haven't we've we've, we've kind of skimmed on him, but Al Horford, twenty points, fifteen rebounds, played close to forty two minutes in this game tonight. A real throwback Al Horford game, and I just think he did. You know, aside from just the you know the twenty and fifteen, he was just once again. It's what we what we keep talking about. He does a little bit of everything for this team for it to get to its you know top tier potential offense and defensively. Like Al is always a guy that's in the mix that's kind of raising that level. And I thought he was phenomenal tonight. I mean, Will, you know, you and I have been talking about Horford for the longest time since we first got him and everybody in Boston just like didn't appreciate Al Horford. And we were like, Al Horford is phenomenal. And I've said it for years. I really do believe that Al Horford, when he's playing at this level, offers like 85 to 90 percent of what Kevin Garnett was offering to the Celtics in like the, in those early years. Like he, he didn't have that like X factor, which made KG like truly, truly special, but like his impact on the offense and defensive end, especially in the modern game of basketball, he's, he's almost like if he wasn't 36 years old, if Al Horford was 28, teams would be lining up around, around the block to try and sign him for a long-term deal. Just the way that he's playing the, the reason why nobody really like, thinks of him as an elite big man anymore. It's just because of his age. But Celtics fans, we've been watching all year. Al Horford can still be extremely elite. And his skill set as the game continues to evolve only pushes him up the up the echelon. I said this a few weeks back. You need to eat that last that final year of that contract. I don't care. Fully eat the full guarantee because you're not finding comparable impacts and comparable production anywhere else you, you might save some dollars but in the process you're going to get a lesser player or somebody that just doesn't fit as seamlessly as what Al Horford does what you saw against Brooklyn today or yesterday for anybody listening on the download was it was prime Al Horford is exactly what he gives you solid rebounding excellent decision making an ability to get the ball and push push the pace up the floor himself um, he's just versatile as hell across both sides of the floor and at the end of the day I don't care if you save him $14.5 million next year. I don't care if it's going to cost you like $24, $25 to keep the dude around for the season. If you you should learn your lesson, like learn from the past. When Al Horford left, the team struggled. When Al Horford came back, everything's rosy again. It tells me that Al Horford needs to be signed into this 55, and we just need to accept that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the guy's the guy's game is pretty much timeless. He doesn't rely on athleticism. Okay, he might slow down a little bit, but okay, cool. We're just playing off the bench. But in my opinion, Al Horford needs to be here next year, and I think that he's going to be a vital, vital cog, not just in this series, but as far as deep as the Celtics are going to go. And he was pretty animated tonight too, which I really love. I love when Al gets a, a little bit animated. He gets, he starts doing the flexing. He was given the offensive, uh, you know, offensive foul call. I think early on in the game, he, you know, he was he was pointing to the crowd after after I think it was a block shot. You know, getting them into it and. You know, it's funny because Al's so much older than everybody on this team. Like, he's, what is Al, I think 35 or 36. Tice is the next oldest at 30. and He just turned 30, you know, like a week ago or two weeks ago. So there's a pretty significant age gap on this team. And so when you see this kind of father-like figure, number one, playing the way he is and contributing the way he is, and you know he, he's out on the perimeter guarding Kyrie Irving or guarding Patty Mills or switching on to whatever he needs to do and then protecting the rim as well, and you see him with that emotion, like getting the crowd into it, like, like I do think there's a real impact that that has on this team's culture, on the way that, you know, these younger guys who are becoming the now leaders of the team, the Marcus Smart, the Jason Tatum, the Jalen Brown, like them seeing that from a guy like Al, like I, I just think it, it you know, it, it has a, like it, it falls throughout that whole team. Like they feed off of that, that energy that Al brings. And I, I love when you get to see him be a little bit more demonstrative in those actions. Man, now I'm just thinking about how great Kevin Garnett would be in 2022 <laughs> basketball. He would be so good. He would be the he would be the best big man in the league by far. 
His versatility. Are you on about now at his age now or just prime KG? No, prime, prime KG. See, that's why I laugh because in my head I'm imagining like nearly 40-year-old KG. (laughs) He would think he is. He would talk himself into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But like up against Jokic and Kat, I'd be like, uh, I'm not sure 40-year-old KG is going to be hanging. Prime KG, different story completely. But that's why I laughed at first because I was like, are you sure? (laughs) But I I get that. No, Al Horford's fantastic. In my head, I just have this image of like coming into work, like as it's imagining like I'm a Celtics, like whatever, coming into work in Boston and just seeing Horford and Ime playing go fish while everybody else is training and Horford's just been giving <laughs> yeah. it down. It's just They're like, playing dominoes put- or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're like, dude, man, you put in, a, you put in a, a shift last night. We can't really ask you to train. You're going to be sore as hell. We need to, you just come and play go fish with him, mate. We'll let the coaches work everybody else. Like they're just there in like shirts, just chilling, cigars. Like, uh, I just have like, it just it's how my mind works. It's just I have to make something funny out of it because I can't f- understand how somebody with such an age gap it has kind of built up such a rapport with everybody. Like, they all love him, they all speak really highly of him. And, like, you, you know what it's like when you go to work and like there's that older dude that wants to be part of the younger crowd. Like, you're just like, dude, you're a bit weird, man. Like, you, you go stand over there, we're gonna do our thing. But Horford's managed to pull it off. Uh, this this game, I can't speak highly of him enough. Without Al Horford, this game, Celtics don't win. Well, everybody yeah, needs to have their role, and you know, Al's Al's the grill master. You, you see, you see the tweet coming out, the Celtics win tweet from our from our account. Al's the grill master. That's what he does. You know, he holds it down in the kitchen on the grill. All the guys are like playing drinking games, or whatever, and Uncle Al just holds it down, man, making Uncle the food Al. and just put, playing good host. You know, he, he brings <laughs> the stability to the party, right? Everybody's got to have a good time. But there's got to be one responsible individual that makes sure there's a stability. Everybody's fed. Everybody's getting, you know, refreshments. Everybody's getting a little bit of water mixed in with the booze. Like, that's just Al. <laughs> making sure everybody's everybody's got what they need, but we're all still having a good time while we do it. You've never been to, um, like, a, a cookout in England, man. Nobody puts water <laughs> in booze here, dude. That, that, that's the quickest way to get you banned from any future get-together, dude. Water and booze. What's this? <laughs> like, that, that's, that's sacrilegious, man. If you did that here, there would be tro- you'd be in a lot of trouble, man. That's not Mr. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, man. Somebody would, want, somebody would want physical altercations. That is not Mr. Reliable. That is Mr. Reckless. You'd be you'd be kicked out of the pot the party in not point five seconds. <laughs> not point five. <laughs> I mean, dude, man, I don't understand. Like, it just it. I try and Americanize everything. That one slipped through the net. What can I say? <laughs> it was good, man. It's good content. I love it. What can I say? I even ended up like texting my boy out in LA. Like, dude, do you say not? He's like, no, no, I don't know what I mean. I was like, you couldn't have told me, bro. <laughs> Because I'm sure whenever I've spoke to your people's in that or I've been there, I'm like, yeah, man, we'll do this like real quick, man. Like, you know, 0.2 seconds, we're in and out. And like, no one's ever pulled me up on it. I've been doing it for years. But no, you, you've, you've said it many times. And I'm like, I was trying to be like, you know what? I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I get it. But I, I really didn't. And I had to text Will the other day. But we're, we're running towards the end of the pod here. We got game two on Wednesday, right? Game two on Wednesday. Yes. All right. What are your guys' predictions for game two? Celtics by four. Will? I'm going to say Celtics. So I, I think this is going obviously one of two ways Celtics win or Celtics lose, but I, <laughs> which is a genius call by me. Right. Right. It's a standard. But, but my point, my point I'm trying to make is if the Nets win, it's going to be the Nets very close to like, you know, buzzer beater three, four point game. I think if the Celtics win game two, they're winning by double digits. I, I agree. I think that the Celtics, I, I predicted Celtics double digits tonight. They just, the Nets had a few runs in them that I didn't see them having. I didn't expect uh, Kyrie to have the game that he had. I didn't expect Dragic to come in and have the impact that he had. Um, so I, I think the Celtics win game two pretty easily. And then game three is that is is the big, big time game. We see if Ben Simmons gets back into the lineup. We see if he's able to make a difference. Um, but I think this, this was the Nets game to win. And the fact that they didn't win it, I think the Celtics you know, sweep the first two games at home. And then I think if Ben Simmons plays, the Celtics win in five. If he doesn't play, they win in six. So you think if Ben Simmons plays, it hurts them? I do. I think I said to, I said on the last podcast, you know, I think he really improves their defense, but I think that he's such a hard player to build around and, and to play off of, especially when you've never played with him before. Now, this isn't Ben Simmons being plugged in after a year with the team, played a bunch last year, then had loads of time off and he's coming back and guys already kind of have some cachet with how to play with him. 
this is coming in having never played alongside KD or Kyrie. Like you, they don't know where like, you don't have spots. Your Ben Simmons, there are no spots. Your spot is at the rim, so it's not even like they need to learn what spots you like. The it's, one you have not. The one counterpoint I would say to that is that the Nets don't really play with a ton of sets, though. You know what I mean? So like, they 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 play almost a little bit more like we talked about. Their goal is to get out in transition and play, you know, pick up rec style basketball. You know where where it's more kind of free flow. So in their ideal state of of what they want to play, in my mind that actually seems like an easier transition. Not that that you still need to know like your teammates and where they're going to be and just like what that feels like playing with them. But theoretically, that that could be a little bit easier. Just playing a little bit of devil's advocate. No, that's fair. I, I'm very curious how much. What percentage of Brooklyn's freeze have come in transition this year? I'm going to find out while Greg gives his opinion. Yeah, I, I think Ben Simmons, if he's coming in and he's replacing, um, you know, five Bruce Brown minutes, he's replacing five Nick Claxton minutes, and then they're able to size up in possession games. Um, I think that's where he's going to make a big difference, right? Is where down the stretch, if they're able to say, okay, Ben Simmons, maybe you're on a 15 minute limit here. You you played 10 throughout the first, you know, three quarters what five minutes in the fourth quarter are we going to be able to throw you out there for? And I think Steve Nash could get very, very um, creative with his ability to go situational basketball and really not worry about him being on the court for the offensive end and just see if they can get him in the game guarding an important possessions. Because that's really what you need is to be able to be big in certain situations. As I referenced earlier, the lineup that kind of scares me um, is a KD, Brown, Claxton, Simmons, and then maybe Kessler Edwards. I think Kessler Edwards would be a guy that I'd look to as, um, you know, a situational defender that they can throw out there. We just where we can't take advantage of of Seth Curry. We can't take advantage of Patty Mills. And even Bruce Brown, like I know he's kind of like a, a tough nosed player. He's got like a good reputation, but like I, I don't personally fear Bruce Brown on the defensive end. I don't think any Celtics fans or Celtics players really fear him on the defensive end as well. So I think the more size they can get on the court, the better for them and the more versatile size. And Ben Simmons is about as versatile and big as it can get. Adam, Brooklyn, you your research? Okay. I have. <laughs> I was just waiting for the last numbers to load on. So I gave you that like little pause. So, Brooklyn have taken 273 transition frees in the regular season. In total, they've taken 2,683 frees. So roughly, give or take, it's about 10%. So 10% of Brooklyn's three-point shots come during transition. In all shots, Brooklyn have taken 938 transition attempts this season. 7,899 total attempts this season. So what's that? It's like, what, 12% have come in transition? That's not a big enough number of shot attempts in transition for me to feel like Ben Simmons can be plug and played in the open court and be be viable. I'd need it to be around that 18 to 21% mark where I'm like, hey, you can plug Ben Simmons in. It's going to be wide open for him at least one in five times. He's going to be able to get himself going. I just don't see, especially when you think 938 transition um scoring opportunities, they've took 938 attempts. 273 of those were frees. So that's not Ben Simmons at all anyway. You're taking him clean out of those 273. So now that percentage where he's actually going to be barreling down towards the rim in transitions even lower. And, uh, when I'm looking at it like that, with guys not really knowing where his spots are, like where does he like to catch the ball when we, when he's you know when he's entering his gather step? Does he want to get start his gather step around the uh, around the nail? Does he want to start it at just above the three-point line, just inside? Maybe he doesn't want to gather step. Maybe he wants to catch one step dunk. They need to know where he, where his pockets are, where he likes to catch the ball, where he's going to kind of be running to to put himself in position to be comfortable and open. You, you're not going to learn that quickly enough for him to be a viable asset offensively, which is why I said before, mm-hmm. for me, if I was personally plugging and playing Ben Simmons, I'd have him as an off-ball screener and a defensive guy. I wouldn't even try and incorporate him too much into the offense because I think that's where he becomes a negative. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's all going to play itself out here soon enough. And, you know, if the Celtics do go ahead and grab that game too, it's just going to make the urgency of that on the Nets end, you know, that that much more stronger. And with that, because I've, it's late here, it's like 12.30, and I've just spent most of the time looking at numbers and being ever so rude, I do apologize. But this is what happens <laughs> when it's late, and I'm like, my brain is just everywhere. 
Uh, with that, make sure this was a crossover episode so you can go listen to it on Celticsblog.com podcast feed or you can go listen to it at 617 Green with Envy. Uh, make sure to give Greg and Will a follow over. You can, you've been able to see their handles on the screen the entire time, so I don't need to read those out. And make sure you go give me a follow. You know where I'm at by now. We'll be back again on Tuesday and then we'll be back again on... Will we be back on Tuesday? No, we'll be back on Wednesday. Yeah. We'll record on Tuesday. You, you would and think then, we'd have the schedule down by now, but I know it's... <laughs> the days get away from me, dude. And then we'll be back on Friday again. Everybody gear up for game two. Celtics up in the series one zip or one to not. Uh, <laughs> go, go get it. Thanks, dude. Thanks, dudettes. Peace. Peace. Ain't disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your opinion Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless Every time I lay a verse down, one play at a time Keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the major, still he chased greatness Expected that he might fail, and I might too I might never get to pop champagne Celebrating with the crew, this ain't everything I am It's something that I do